In this chapter, in chapter 8, we encounter the gospel. And you may be sitting there thinking, I don't quite see that. It's there. And I want to show you how embedded in this chapter are, are the elements, the building blocks of the gospel. Look, let me, let me just, uh, let me start at the beginning. Uh, Mission Impossible. Anybody into the Mission Impossible movies? Yeah? I know you are, I know Sid is. Yeah, I think there's a new, any, any, when's the next one due, Sid? Any movement? Now, COVID has put a lot of the movies on hold, doesn't it, including James Bond. But look, uh, Mission Impossible 3, uh, if you remember it at all, if you've watched it, it begins, you've got Ethan Hunt, he's the, uh, the hero, and he's, he's got his, um, the lady he's married, uh, Julia, and she's a gunpoint. Uh, he's tied up. She's a gunpoint. There's um, Philip's, Philip Hoffman. His name is Owen Davian in the movie. And he's got a gun to his wife's head and he wants some information about the rabbit's foot. And unless he gets it, he's going to shoot his wife. Well, anyway, we hear the gun go off. And then the movie cuts to the, that signature... We'll have the next one, please. That signature uh, fuse, f- fuse going off. And you're left, it's a cliffhanger. And you're left wondering where this is all going. And then when the, when the film resumes, when the, next, when the credits end and the film begins, it's a brand new scene. In fact, it's a few days earlier before that event. And now you've got to sit through the whole movie to get to find out what happens at the beginning. And the movies do that, don't they, to get you to keep watching. That's the whole idea. They won't walk out of the cinema. Esther, the book of Esther. There's elements of that here. It, it, it coined the phrase, if you like, because we have this incredible scenario when finally Haman is discovered, found out, and speedily brought to justice. And it's incredible. The very fate that he intended for Mordecai came back on himself, impaled. It's, uh, I mean, it doesn't bear thinking about it, does it? But, but it's justice that was served. And so we left there, and, and the chapter ends. And here's a cliffhanger. What is the cliffhanger? Someone tell me, what is the cliffhanger? Because you're left thinking, okay, but what now? Why? What's the cliffhanger? Yeah. Why are we still worried about what's going to happen to the Jews? Haman is dead. Why are we still worried about what may happen to the Jews? Because exactly the point. Look, it's a bit like if you light a fuse of a bomb, you know, you know. Um, I don't suppose anybody here has done that, have they? You've done that like this, it? Not a good idea. <laughs> okay, okay. Whatever happens to the person thereafter, that fuse is still burning. And here's the cliffhanger. Haman is dead, but what about the fuse? What about the edict? And where was the edict by now? I mean, where has he got to by now? He was into every... 123 problems. Yes, thank you. Well, there you go. Thanks, Graham. He was in everybody's hands. And he was alive. And he was irrevocable. That's how chapter 8 begins. The edict is live. It's irrevocable. Whatever happens to Haman... And that's one solace he did have, wasn't it? You can imagine in his final moments that there was, a, a, there was an ounce of, I don't know, a, a glorying that his edict was still out there as he faced his end. And so what's going to happen to the Jewish people now? 
I mean, what's banking on it? Think about this. What's banking on the survival of the Jewish race? Yes. Jesus. You, Morag. Your part in God's kingdom is banking on what takes place in chapter 8. So let's look at it together. So our heading is this, and you've got to wonder where this is from, but you're going to have to wait till the end of the movie to find out. Here's our heading. Look, our main heading for the book so far is a God who's bigger than me and my circumstances. And here's our heading today, our subheading. God himself comes to our rescue. God himself comes to our rescue. Let's see how, how God does this. So look, verse 1. That same day, so this is urgent, obviously, and, and notice how quickly everything's happening here. Everything, there's real pace here between Mordecai being honoured, Haman being found out, Haman executed, and here it's very fast. On that very same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. It's what you did to traitors. Traitors of the kingdom had their property confiscated. And, and the king passes it over to Esther's charge. And look what she does. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So she now spills all, okay? The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, along with all his property, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Tell me, what's happened to Mordecai? Yeah, this is a complete and utter role reversal. Okay, it was Haman who had the ring. What could you do with this ring? Uh, Yeah, the question should be, what can't you do with that ring? Okay, it was the most powerful piece of jewellery in the world. It stood for the entire power of the Persian state without the king having to give any further secondary sanction just to hold that gave you the full authority of the king. He's got, he's got Haman's position and Haman's property. And he was wealthy. Remember what he was going to do to the king for, for assassinating all the Jews? Okay, put all that money in the, in the treasury. So, so immense role reversal. Mordecai is both the wealthiest man now and the most powerful except to the king. It's amazing how God is at work here. It gives us hope, friends, when everything is against us. Who knows that when God steps in, as it were, everything works for us. Haven't you noticed that sometimes in your life? That when you finally just engage in what God is doing with you, it just all comes together perfectly. And so, verse 3, okay, Esther again pleads with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the plan of Haman the Agagite, which she had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the golden scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before him. So here's what needs to be done. Something needs to be done. She comes before the king, and this time, again, he accepts, extends the scepter, She speaks up this time. Look, if he pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it's the right thing to do, if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. 
For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And notice, can you see what she's doing? First of all, who is in trouble here according to Esther? It's Esther's family. So she puts it in the best light before the king. She's already, obviously, remember, this is a very intelligent young lady. She's already worked out, not dealt with Mordecai, the solution, the one solution, the only solution. What is the only possible solution? Because you cannot revoke the first edict. What does Esther suggest? What is the only other possible solution? Is to write a second edict. Is to put a second edict in place. Haman intended to destroy all the Jews. And if you're wondering, why would a guy really, seriously, just because of his gripe with Mordecai, want to destroy all the Jews? Why did he want to destroy all the Jews? What was it about Haman? Yes, there was history. There was, there was strife. This was, this was, look, you know what's going on in the Middle East. There's, there's praise the Lord. There's some form of ceasefire, temporarily at least. Uh, but you know all the history. Imagine well, when, a, when, well, when a Jew and an Arab in, in meet. It's not neutral, is it? There's hundreds of years of ancient hostility. Yeah. Hostility. Yeah, goodness sake. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hostility. Thank you. That's what's going on here with Haman. And Haman sees it as an opportunity that he can write what his ancestors weren't able to do. So he puts his whole thing into place to kill every Jew. Esther suggests, as an incredible one, that a second edict go out. So the best they can do, the best they can do is to send as a second edict. So verse, verse 8, it goes, Write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you the king says, and seal it with the king's signet ring, because that's where all the power is, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Incidentally, this is one piece of history that we get entirely from the Bible. There's actually no secular record of such, uh, uh, of such irrevocable edicts. Uh, we, this is one part of history where the, the historical data is exclusively biblical. And we obviously take that to be the case uh, as it is. Verse 9, At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the second month, just two months after the first one. So, so by now, the edict has got out into the community. Let me just ask you, what kind of response do you think the edict received from their communities towards the Jews? No, sorry, the first one. I mean the first one. When I got the first one, what kind of response? Yeah. Why? Yeah. People have always hated them. Whatever Jews were in, they were successful. And here was an opportunity to get your neighbour's car. Because it wasn't just life. They were, they were to both kill aggressively without provocation. It's horrible, isn't it? And plunder. I mean, we've seen that, haven't we? Oh, some of us, nobody near, maybe Brenton, uh, who's old enough to have, to have known about that in, the, in that war. That's what happened to the Jews. 
people were licensed to kill them and confiscate their property. Imagine that history repeats itself. So that's what was going on. So two months later, a second decree, verse 10, Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches and with the king's signet ring, which had all the power which he now possessed, and sent them by mounted courier who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. I was in a mobile phone shop the other day. Uh, we were struggling with our network, and you know, so we needed to change. Um, we've still got our same numbers. Um, and he was telling me about 5G. You know, I'll be, I'm a bit backward with technology. Apparently, 5G is a hundred times faster than 4G. Okay, you get your internet so much quicker. And that's the thing. We live in a world, don't we, where if I want to get look, if I want to get information to Brazil, you know, I can send something instantly. If you wanted to get something to the other side of the Persian Empire, you had to take it personally. This is a mammoth undertaking. So, hence, the fast horses. This has got to be urgent. They've got to get people prepared. They've got to be on hand. And here's, here's what the edict is doing. And I notice the difference here between the edict of Haman and the edict given to the Jews. The king's edict, verse 11, granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble. Because you weren't allowed to just assemble because you may have been threatening the king. If you got together... You, you could be hatching a plan against the king. You know, and so you were sorted. But now they're allowed to get together to assemble and protect themselves to destroy and kill and annihilate any armed force or any nationality of the province that might attack them and their women and children to plunder their property for their, of their enemies. Can you see the, the key difference here? The Haman's edict was... An indiscriminate, unprovoked assault on their neighbours for gain. That's how Haman sold it. Hey, you can have their car and their house. Just kill them and take it. Okay? The edict that Mordecai writes combats it, but notice the grace in it. They can kill, destroy, and annihilate. That means they can use up to lethal force. That's the point here. To protect their lives and their families. In fact, he even allowed the confiscation of property, which didn't take place, as it so happens we see later. And so the second edict is a gracious one of self-preservation and protection, using whatever is necessary, lethal means if necessary, for their survival. And so with a role reversal, look at the state of the nation now. For the, for the Jews, it was a time of happiness, joy, gladness and honour. And in every province where the king's edict had reached, there was joy, gladness for the Jews with feasting and celebrating. Everything's turned. Haman has gone. His fortune has been hand over, handed over to Mordecai. He's got his prestige, he's got his power, he's got his office, he's got his ring. And the nation, remember? The nation was disturbed. The whole of the city was disturbed. And now the celebration, and and here's the reason for the celebration, because there's two edicts out there, but who's got the upper hand now? There's two edicts out there, and you think it's, it's a case of equals, 
Well, who's got the upper hand? Mordecai, thank you. Because who has now got the empire's backing? The second edict. And so that's what the celebration is going on here. Because there may be the first edict, but the second one has the empire stating and supporting. And here's what we've got to understand, is that whatever there were Persian military dotted around the kingdom, that the support of the government or the state will be towards the recipients of Mordecai's edict. He's now the hero. He's now the one people are feeling. He's now the one that you want to show respect to. So it gives complete and utter power and victory, certain victory, preservation to the Jews. It saves the Jewish nation. It preserves the Jewish people. It ensures that they're able to return to their land. It ensures that in due time, a carpenter lives and works in Nazareth. Because <laughs> Jesus was born in Bethlehem, wasn't he? In Nazareth. It's ensured that Jesus was born and that our salvation took place. We read these things, friends, these stories in the Bible, but none of us really can appreciate, I'm sure, the gravity of those events. What took place there matters to you and me. And so all is saved. And so look, we're coming to our application. I'm just trying to be briefer. I know we've had other elements in our service today. So what does this do for us? Our heading is God himself comes to our rescue. Okay, How do we get that from all that? God himself comes to our rescue. It's what we're getting from that. It's what I'm suggesting is that this story typologically speaks of. These things took place for our benefit, Paul says, that all the Old Testament events, Paul says, took place for our benefits. The whole of the Bible story is about salvation history. It's what we're doing on the theology course, which incidentally is this Thursday, guys, and lasses. Okay. Um, How is that contributing to the salvific storyline? Where do we get our head in? God himself comes to our rescue. It is out of man's hand. What is out of man's hand? Okay, that's the case. So for us then, God himself comes to our rescue. How do the two... Just have, just have a think about this. Where's the parallel then? That's the case for them. What's the parallel? And, and, that, that, and that's where we're going. Thank you, Morag. So here's the thing. So Morag's got his spot on. Jesus came to save us. Here's how it works. Okay. What was the commonality in those two edicts? There's a single commonality in those two edicts. The one that went out from Haman and the one that went out from Mordecai had one thing in common. What was the commonality? Yes, thank you. Their commonality is their authority, which is what? Or where? 
Xerxes is. The commonality between the two edicts, both the one of death and the one of salvation, came from one source. The signet ring belonged to the king. It was his authority. The edict to kill, the edict to die, and the edict to live came from the same source. Let me ask you, what is the predicament over the human race? Don't do any, any text yet, Ricky. To, to draw the same conclusion, God has the power for life. Well, he does, he does. That, that, that is the conclusion. What is the, what is the predicament that every human has, every being, every creature has to die? Every living creature has over it. And it's not by chance, not by accident. Why did they die, Sid? Why? What, 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 why is this predicament in place? Is it, is it by accident? Is it by chance? Is it what happens naturally? I've been at the funerals and they get me, drive me crazy. I had to wind up Montez is to take him to the funeral and tell him that this is natural. That's exactly what it is. Thank you. How long has that been up there? You're helping your husband out here with the answer, aren't you? Come on, sit here. Here it is, darling. Okay? Okay. This is the predicament of all living creatures. Okay? Adam and Eve, as federal heads of humanity, brought us all under this predicament. I think the next verse there, Ricky, here. As a result of their failing, the edict or the predicament over all of creation is that we will die. It's not natural. We were not designed to die. Let me ask you. I mean, see, you made us, uh, thank you, that, that lovely able that, that, that we use in Modbury. When you made that, did you plan and were you expecting and are you hoping that it's going to degrade and break down and be useless? <laughs> yeah, that's not your intention, is it? How long did you make it to last for? As long as you could possibly make it last. When God created the for life, friends, he had no intention of it ever ending. He doesn't do that. Who does that? Who makes something to get frail and die? We're meant to live forever. But because of the sin of our forefathers, we have over us whose edict of death? Whose? Whose authority? Whose word? No, it's not, is it? Who's the edict of death? Who pronounced the edict? Who empowers the edict? Whose authority does this edict need to be effective? God. God. He's in charge here. I think there's one thing we have to understand. The death edict was issued by God. These are his words. Satan's. Satan became an element in beguiling humans into sinning, which, which empowered this command. But it's God's edict. It's his authority. What does Hebrews 9 say? On whose word and authority do we die? Hebrews 9.27 it, it is appointed unto men once to die. It's a hard pill to swallow. It's God's edict because of sin that results in the death of all living creatures. It's his authority. It's his signet ring. And now you can see where the 
where I'm going to head in from, can't you? Because where are we going next? What is the edict? And from where did the edict come that brings life to our world? From the same source. From the same signet ring. From the same authority. God himself comes to our rescue. God himself comes to our rescue. I think we'll just miss some of the figures out I've got there for you, Ricky. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Before we start getting angry with God, because it is his edict, it's what we die. It's our sin, it's his law. Our rescue and our hope and our salvation comes from him. It's his initiation. It's angry. What's it angry? And it's beautiful. You need to know this, Christian. You need to know this. What's his salvation plan anchored in? For God so loved the world. God never revels in death. To Peter, he is not willing that any should perish. We can never put it as though, this is a Lord of, by God, but he takes no pleasure in it. He has no pleasure in death, in suffering, in pain. And so God acts on our behalf. And he doesn't just send a message, an agent. What does he do? In Jesus, he comes himself. You see, Jesus is coming is as good as God's coming because it's him, it's himself. He gives of himself to us. He comes himself. God himself comes and is what God himself said. Jesus Christ, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, will not be condemned, has crossed over from death to life. It's a brilliant plan. That God sends his son into our world and a faith in his name gives us a chance against this edict of death. Gives us hope. In fact, gives us more than a chance. It, it promises your salvation by faith in God. By faith in God. And in 2 Corinthians 5 just gives us a little bit of the mechanics. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how this edict works. God moves all his wrath. The, the edict of death that is over you and me and the reason for it is our sin. He moves all of that to his son. He becomes the object of God's wrath. He becomes the, uh, the beneficiary of the death edict. He becomes the sole beneficiary by taking all of our sin upon himself. Every sin, leaving us completely with an empty account. And he dies the death. And you notice the thing about that edict. It can't just be overcome by a second edict. 
the first edict of God must be satisfied. Jesus dies. He pays the price. And for all who believe, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I want to leave this with you. I know we are all professing faith here. But I want to leave this with you. With you, Brenton. With you, Joe. With you, Sid. With you, Montez. With you, Graham. With you, Ricky and Pam and Jerry and Lorraine and Charles and every other person. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. These are not elementary things that we did on, the, on day one of our faith. No. These are what we do daily. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we walk. We believe in him. It's a daily, regular, momentary exercise. And as we do, death loses all its power over us. Amen. God himself comes to our rescue. Amen.